Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me, as usual. How's it going, hey guys? Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. That's uh, <laughs> good. I um, getting ready for this giant winter storm that's about to hit. I don't know if you've seen the radar, but it's like expected to cover every single county in Texas, every single county in Louisiana, except for maybe New Orleans and like all but one county in Mississippi and about half of Alabama by tomorrow. So, so- that's gonna be fun. I don't really feel a whole lot of compassion for you people because it's been like one degree, two degrees here. No, no, but here's the thing. This is what I say. First of all, people in the North don't get a monopoly on what is cold or not. one, One, two degrees is cold, but also 32 is objectively cold. It's just cold. I mean, it's not as cold, but it's still cold. Second of all, we do not here in the South have the infrastructure to deal with a winter storm like you do up there. We listen, don't have snow trucks. Listen, our, our, I don't our, have the infrastructure to deal with it either. I'm but your so city tired. does. Oh, it's awful. I'm we so don't have sick salt trucks that can like de-ice the roads so you can drive to work. Like that's why everything shuts down. There's no budget for salt trucks because but it happens once every four years. Don't realize that that salt gets everywhere. It's coating the inside of your car. It's on your shoes. It gets tracked all throughout your house. It gets all over your clothes. It just it's ugh. oh I I do know that because I lived in uh, Louisville for a it's year, nice. and that's what like my car needs some. Um, I need to get like some body work done on my car because the paint's chipped from the salt. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it sucks. I don't love it. And it's just like, I feel so sad and nostalgic for California right, right? now. Like, yep. oh, I miss the fact that I could be outside with just a light jacket on mm-hmm. right now. Yep. Hiking all year long, beach all year long. Oh, it's brutal. Brutal. So we're dealing with that. And then the plasterers just finished with our stuff this week. And yeah? That's... So your bathtub's working things? Um, they didn't do the bathtubs. They just oh, okay. did the ceilings and the walls. Oh, okay. the plasters that, yeah. So gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. They, okay. they were a lot of spots in the ceilings where there were like water damage and things like that. And they went mm-hmm. through and fixed all that stuff and got it all situated. So it's looking nice and neat. But the problem is like having done that, even though they put up plastic to separate the rooms that they were working in, like there is a coating of dust Mm. and like plaster all over everything oh that sucks and so i've mopped the floors probably three times since Mm -hmm. they started working and it's just like there's this coating of fine dust that just does not go away i hate the way that feels it feels like a film and you're just like you just feel dirty all the time and these guys actually mopped the floors and did some cleanup but they Mm -hmm. used like this vinegar solution on the floors uh, and stuff, which I'm not really they want sure. To use anything caustic? Yeah, I'm not really sure why they did that. It stinks, first of all, yeah, and second of all, has left this kind of cloudy film all over everything. Mm. So it's not pleasant, and it will probably take me weeks to get past that. But joy, good times. Yeah. <laughs> it took me like two <laughs> hours to clean the floors on the just the first floor. Mop the floors, Cinderella. I was like, oh my God, I am Cinderella. I am. (laughs) Um, So anyway, um, maybe we should jump into the main case for the day. Um, Yeah. 
By the way, though, first, before we do that, I've been getting a lot of people that have been kind of emailing me and texting me about the Elisa Lamb because the specials. Have you watched it? I haven't watched it yet, but people oh, are like, sucks. wow, it's really interesting. And it's really very sad reflection on the mental health industry mm-hmm. in this country and the way we view people with mental health problems. And I mm-hmm. asked a few people if there was anything new in the series and they were like, not really. It's all just so- the same information. One thing that I did not know is that a lot of the internet sleuths jumped on um, some musician that I guess hung around the area. And like a lot of people, like they outed him, like they used his real name and they like suspected him. And like, they basically like really ruined his reputation online. Saying he was involved? And I, they, like a lot of people on the internet said he was involved. And I think it's pretty clear now that he wasn't. I think they talk about it on the documentary. I haven't watched it, but from what I've heard, um, it like really affected his ability to start his like music career. Wow. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. Um, And then the other thing that I heard about it is there's kind of these conspiracy theorist folks out there that are saying that this Cecil hotel is, they call it a Hellsmith or a hell's mouth. Have you heard of that? Like where the, like, it's like the, the mouth to hell or something. It's a portal to hell. It's a portal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just got the chills. Like somebody really? was talking to me about it. She's like, this is just such a creepy thing. And I was just like, oh, you, of course, you know, you don't think yeah. in terms of that, but no, no, I, I guess it has more to do with like Renaissance history and, and mm-hmm. things where you see the pictures of, um, there's being like an entrance to hell mm-hmm. and oof, there's like a mouth. So it's like they call it a hell's mouth, like a big, huge creature with its mouth open, and that's the portal to hell somewhere. But, I mean, that hotel has had so many creepy, gross, like, criminal-type things happen there that, I mean, I can see where people would come to that kind of a conclusion. I mean, kind of. It's also just kind of the area that it's in. Like, it's not in Beverly Hills. You know what I mean? But it's a boutique hotel now. (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) my friend was like i think i'm gonna go have a drink there now because it's a boutique hotel right oh yeah (laughs) i was like oh tell me about it tell me all about it (laughs) yeah yeah she's really funny she's like okay i'll let you know i'm not sure if she was actually serious or not yeah although if anybody could do it i think she could because she's just kind of a badass so we'll see if she actually does it or not but so we're gonna get into some serious not that Elisa Lamb isn't serious, but we're going to get into some really serious and graphic details today. So I just want to give people a trigger warning. Um, the topics that we're going to deal with probably in the next couple episodes are just really grim, very graphic and very um, violent and disturbing. So if you are triggered by that kind of thing, I suggest that you turn the podcast off now because that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, we kind of sat down and discussed this between the two of us. And and because this is Black History Month, we decided we're going to tackle some of the um, historic cases out there. And so today I'm going to talk about Emmett Till. Mm. So personally, before I actually researched and looked at this case, I did not know a lot about this young man. I knew that he was a figure that was kind of ensconced within the civil rights movement and that he was considered kind of a martyr. Um, But I didn't know a lot of the details about his life and a lot of the details about what happened before and after the case. 
mm-hmm. etc. So I kind of wanted to get into that, delve into it, look at it, learn from it. Um, I think I think a lot of people probably have that same kind of awareness of it. They know the name, um, but they don't necessarily know quite as many details as like they kind of think they do. Right. I knew he was lynched mm-hmm. and I knew that they publicly displayed his body mm-hmm. afterwards um, for, for some very specific reasons, but I didn't know a lot of the background in this case. And I think that it's really important to kind of delve into that, to understand some of the stuff behind it and why his mother did what she did after mm-hmm. he passed away and how he became sort of a central figure of the civil rights movement, despite the fact that he was just a young boy yeah. and he, and he died. So yeah. Emmett Lewis Till was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1941. So local connection here, um, to the Illinois area. His mother, Mamie Carthen, and his father, Louis Till, um, raised him as a young child. His mother was born in the Mississippi area in a town called Webb, Mississippi, which is a a Delta town. Let's talk about the Delta region for a second. Yeah. Um, This region covers a pretty big area in Mississippi with multiple counties in northern Mississippi. So it's basically a watershed of Yazoo and Mississippi rivers. And it's also known as the Yazoo Mississippi Delta or simply the Delta and also includes parts of Arkansas and Louisiana. Um, The region is known for being the most southern place on earth. Quote, (laughs) the most southern place on earth, unquote. Culturally southern, I'm imagining. Yes, like with every part of its fiber and being. Yeah. This area is very uniquely racial, cultural, and economic for its history, and is approximately 200 miles long and 87 miles wide. Contained within that area is about 4,400,000 acres, or about 7,000 square miles of alluvial floodplain. Hmm. Okay. So originally the area was covered in hardwood forest, but settlers cleared the wood and made the area into the little made the area into one of the most productive cotton-growing areas in the nation. And also they grew other types of crops in there, but it was most well-known for its cotton-growing in the the time before the Civil War. So at that time, there were dozens of riverfront cotton plantations that cropped up by wealthy white plantation owners who made their fortunes on the backs of black slaves who actually composed the majority of the population in the Delta region. Mm -hmm. So these... Wealthy white landowners came in, snatched up the land, and used slave labor to build their fortunes. Um, Due to the slow development and lack of railroads in that area, though, in the region of the bottomlands where the Delta was, very little money was spent to develop facilities in other parts of the community. So it's basically just these plantations with not a lot of cities and Mm -hmm. facilities for people in those areas. And it's still like that today very 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 rural yeah and very poor Mm -hmm. um according to historical accounts both black and white migrants flooded this area prior to the civil war cleared the timber and used the timber money to buy the land interestingly enough by the end of the 19th century black farmers composed two-thirds of the independent farms in the delta region so they were quite prosperous they were making a living for themselves and they were doing what they needed to do to be successful Mm A lot of sharecroppers in the area. Right. Mm, Not yet. Oh. Clearly, black people were striking out on their own. They were gaining independence and developing their own communities, independence of whites. And this 
is pointed out very, very rarely in historical accounts. They don't want us to know about that necessarily. It's not something that's talked about in history classes. I never learned about that in history classes. Mm -hmm. Of course, this sort of thing was not acceptable when whites started noticing the black communities were not dependent on the whites to curtail this particular problem. Whites dominated the state legislatures in Mississippi and shut down everything in about 1890. They passed a new state constitution and the result of this was a disenfranchisement of most blacks in Mississippi. And I'm going to um, talk about a little bit more in that in just a second. Can like I interject how they real quick? With sure. A, just a fun trivia fact. Mississippi sure. was actually the first state in the United States to have a black senator after the Civil War. And it was shortly after that that they rewrote the Constitution and they began disenfranchising blacks. And they have not had a black senator since. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. But... This sort of new constitution and this disenfranchisement created a black hole over the next three decades where most black farmers lost their land and farms after a tightening of credit and political oppression. So mm-hmm. they had they were forced to be sharecroppers and tenant farmers and work somebody else's land while they sold their own land in order to eke just a meager, modest living out of this land and basically to survive. Yeah. Political exclusion in this region continued well into the 1960s until the civil rights movement started making some headway. Mm-hmm. Today, the region is mostly black still, even though a good portion of the gla- excuse me, even though a good portion of them left during the Great Migration in the early part of the 20th century, where nearly half a million blacks left the Delta region to find jobs in the Northeast, the Midwest, and the Western industrial cities. Mm-hmm. The jobs in the regions mostly centered around timber, soybeans, crops like cotton, sugarcane, etc., and rice. And it was prone to flooding at times during that, so it was kind of a risky endeavor for anyone unless they had a really super large farm and the kind of funds to be able to, to live through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the area is also known as one of the first areas in the nation to incorporate slavery. So about 90% of the bottomlands in Mississippi were still underdeveloped and undeveloped prior to the Civil War, and this attracted thousands of migrants into the area. Um, But it was much harder to get credit after the new constitution, and illiteracy also helped whites take advantage of credit principles and accounting with sharecroppers and tenant farmers. So... Early agriculture in the Delta region centered on tobacco, and initially the colonists were French farmers who tried to enslave Native Americans. But the Native Americans were not having it. They would escape constantly, and they didn't fall into line. So by the 18th century, French, Spanish, and English settlers started importing Africans instead to work Hmm. the land. At the high point of cotton production, more than a million African slaves were taken from Africa and brought to the South. By the early 1800s, though, cotton was king and slavery was well established in the region. To prevent blacks from using the majority to gain autonomy, white politicians developed things like poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses to ensure that blacks would not be able to participate in the vote or the political system. When that didn't work, they resorted to brutal violence and intimidation. So... The Delta region itself fought tooth and nail against change through the years, and they were one of the most common areas where lynchings of blacks would occur to intimidate, threaten, and oppress black people. 
This region was known for fierce and violent white resistance to change with groups of whites murdering blacks who tried to vote or use public facilities. And although lynchings primarily started out as a tool where white people were lynched, they very soon became a tool of intimidation against blacks that wanted to participate in the political Mm -hmm. system. So this is the sort of environment that Emmett's mother, Mamie, was born into. But her family was also part of the Great Migration that moved to Illinois for a chance at a better life and to escape violence and oppression. So she was lucky enough to get out. But there were so many migrants from Mississippi in Argo, the area where her family moved, that it was nicknamed Little Mississippi. Hmm. Now, this migration caused a shift in power. And it's kind of important to realize that Mamie's family was very, very supportive of this shift. And they wanted to help other migrants that were coming up from Mississippi. And so they allowed their house and their home to be used by other migrants that were coming to help them find jobs and housing as they moved up north. Mm -hmm. So that was really important to them. And it's kind of a, it shows sort of the heart of this family and how they wanted to help and support their community. And it was a town called Argo? Yes. Do you know where that is? Is it like near Chicago? Yes. Okay. So Argo, it's about 14 miles from Chicago. Oh, okay. So it's literally right outside Chicago. Yeah. Super, super close. Gotcha. Um, So around the 40s and 50s, when Mr. Emmett Till was born, Mississippi was the poorest state in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the Delta region included some of the poorest counties as well. And that's why so many black families left their beloved Mississippi homes and land to move north and gain opportunities as well as to escape oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, Jim Crow laws were designed to establish and cement racial segregation for all aspects of Southern life. And I think that there were many black people who had worked so hard to escape slavery to only be forced with that. And the next generations to have to deal with that was just probably heartbreaking from them. So although they probably loved their land and their home, they knew that they had to do something different to build a better life for their families. Did you guys talk about like the tests that they started implementing to prevent black people to vote? Did you guys talk about that in school when you were like growing up? No. No. So like we did and it was it would be like literally like guess the number of pennies in a jar and if you didn't get it exactly right, you were not allowed to register to vote or like guess the number of bubbles on a bar of soap. Yeah. Just and it was incredible. like it was it was I mean it was entirely set up to where you you couldn't possibly get the answer correct. Therefore you couldn't even register to vote and when you can't when you're not registered to vote, you can't serve on a jury. No. So it was designed purposefully to ensure that no blacks could Mm -hmm. participate in the political system, in the jury system and anything. Now, Emmett's early life was not easy either. His parents had a very tumultuous relationship. It is said that he was very violent towards her um, and reportedly also unfaithful towards Mamie. And they separated in 1942 when Emmett was just a baby. Now, Mamie eventually got a court order to keep Emmett's father away, um, but his behavior was so bad that he violated the court order on numerous occasions, and he was forced eventually to choose between jail and the army. So in 1943, he enlisted and was sent to Europe Mm -hmm. as part of the army. Okay. Um, A few weeks prior to Emmett's fourth birthday, his family discovered that Louis Till had been executed. Now... 
It's my understanding that the family wasn't really in the know as far as understanding and knowing what he'd been executed for. So they okay. said that he basically was disobedient and had not followed orders and been killed. But, so he was executed by the army, not died as a result yes. of the war. Wow. So what happened was they said that he had raped several women and murdered one Italian woman and that Whoa. he'd been put to death because of it. Now, keep in mind, I, I take all this with sort of a grain of salt because although Till did have a history of domestic violence against Mamie, discrimination towards black was, excuse me, discrimination towards blacks was widespread and there were many instances of wrongful convictions and sort of setting people up to take the fall for something that didn't actually happen just by, by virtue of the color of their skin. Right. So I don't necessarily know that there is concrete evidence that his father did any of this. Um, and there's a chance that perhaps he didn't, that he was just a victim of that. And well, there were... Blacks weren't allowed on juries, and many of them were framed for crimes in court that they did not commit. So there is the possibility that his father was a victim of that as well. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I wanted to kind of mention that as you can't necessarily use that conviction and his execution for that crime in Italy as, you know, hard, fast, like this is definitely what happened. Mm -hmm. So he, he was executed in Italy as a part of a military court. Yes, Okay, yes. so the only thing I'll say about that, and like I said, I don't, I, I didn't actually know that information. So the only kind of supplement that I'll add is that that was right in the middle of World War II, and I don't know, I don't know uh, very much about the discrimination of blacks in the military in the European campaign. I know it was obviously segregated and very, very pervasive in the military during peacetime and, and they were segregated actually in the campaigns, but I don't know about like in terms of criminal, like crimes and things like that, um, what it was like. And I'm not, I, I just, I wonder if um, it seems like it takes a lot of logistics to put somebody to trial and execute somebody when you're in the middle of fighting a war. I don't know if they go right. through with all of that just for racism purposes, but I mean, well, I did my thesis in college on blacks in the military. Oh, okay. So it's my understanding that there was quite a bit of discrimination, not necessarily as bad as you would find in the Deep South, mm -hmm. but there were plenty of instances where there was discrimination to the point where people quite possibly lost their lives, their livelihoods, okay. their jobs because of that discrimination. And there was also discrimination in Germany towards blacks yeah. and Italy and Europe in general. So... Whether that happened in this particular case, I don't know. Gotcha. And I don't, I think that the kind of the verdict's out on that one as well, because I don't think that there was necessarily a lot of people documenting every single detail about that kind of stuff sure. back then. Um, and I think that it was really brought forward in an attempt to sort of create this perception of Emmett Till and his family and maybe say perhaps that he was like his father and he's a oh. good for nothing and, and use that as a black mark against him when okay. it shouldn't have been. I got so you now. my understanding is that's something that you got to kind of look at it with it. Right. A, maybe it's not as important as people would have it seem. Right. Okay. So, but regardless, Emmett didn't really know his father anyway. Mm -hmm. um, his mother and his grandmother raised him. And when he was six, he got polio and developed a stutter that persisted throughout his life um, after that period. 
Um, and that's going to come back later. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. But Emmett's mom moved him to Detroit, Michigan, where she got married to a man by the name of Pink Bradley in 1951. But Emmett really preferred Chicago. He liked the feel there, the city, and he convinced his mother to let him go back and live with his grandmother. Um, Mamie and Pink came later that year, but the marriage ended in 1952. Okay. So it's my understanding by all accounts that Mamie was a very intelligent woman. So like she got good grades in school and excelled academically. So um, I think she was interested in developing her career and she was um, setting up a good example for her son and doing everything that she could to show him what it meant to be living as a black man in society. Mm -hmm. So she, she wanted to teach him the realities of it because she had been born in the South and her family's from the South, but she also wanted him to grow and learn and have the experience that Chicago allowed him to kind of get away a little bit from the extreme racism of the South. Mm -hmm. Now they lived on Chicago's South side near some relatives and Chicago South side is pretty familiar. Um, they featured a lot in that show, uh, shameless. <laughs> oh, really? I never watched that one. Yeah. So evidently now, um, the area has become kind of a Mecca for all different races and, and mm-hmm. skin colors and things like that. But there were a lot of black families that moved onto the South side back then in the fifties. Um, and Mamie worked as a civilian clerk for the air force. So she okay. had a good job. Um, and back then for a black woman to have a job like that, you really had to be on your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because they didn't, they wouldn't hire just anybody. And then to be a black woman, to have a good job like that meant that she was like incredible. She must've been incredibly smart. In the meantime, Emmett helped out with chores and tried to do as much around the house as he could to help his mother. He even stood up for her after the divorce with Pink Bradley. He came back at one point and threatened Emmett's mom. And Emmett was said to have grabbed a knife at the age of 11 and confronted this man and been like, you leave leave my mom alone or I'm going to kill you. Whoa. Like he was brave Mm -hmm. and he was like, I'm not going to let you, it's not right for you to pick on this on my mom and I'm going to defend her. Mm -hmm. Emmett was also known to have been a happy-go-lucky kid despite that incident and and maybe one or two others during that time period. He also enjoyed pulling pranks. He liked playing baseball and was known to have been a quite snazzy dresser. So he liked to dress very, very well. Peacock a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Um, And he liked to be the center of attention at school. Physically, by 1955, Emmett was about 150 pounds and he was about five foot four inches tall with a muscular and stocky build. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you see pictures of him around that time, you can see that he was a good looking kid and he looks like he was quite charming and outgoing despite his little bit of a stammer that kind of blocked him Mm -hmm. at times. But in the summer of 1955, Mose Wright or Moses, however you want to say it, I think it's Mose. I think it's Mose. Mose Wright, who was Emmett's great uncle, it was Mamie's uncle, had come to visit and he was telling Emmett stories about the Mississippi Delta, which is an area that is very rich in history. I believe that's where the blues and rock and roll started. So I'm sure he was telling Emmett all the cool stuff about that area and to be honest with you, I've been down in that area and I think it's absolutely beautiful. Like mm-hmm. despite some of the poverty and, and obviously people struggling in some of those areas, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of our country. Um, and I think this intrigued Emmett and he wanted to see what it was like for himself. So initially Mamie had planned 
to take Emmett to visit relatives in Nebraska, but he begged and pleaded to be allowed to go visit with Moe's instead. Oh, hard pass on Nebraska. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> but Mamie eventually said yes and was like, mm-hmm. okay, you can go visit Moe's, go see, you know, where you're from. Cause that's like where his relatives were from. Yeah. So back home in Mississippi, Moe's Wright was a sharecropper and a part-time minister. Friends and family called him preacher and he was known to be a good guy. So I don't think Mamie had any worries about letting Emmett visit with him. Mm-hmm. He lived in a little town called Money, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And this is a very tiny little town with just three stores, a school, a post office, a cotton gin, and a few hundred residents. So small town, extreme small town. And this was obviously a super small place in the South. And Emmett's mother wanted to be sure that her son, that her son understood how dramatically different it was going to be from Chicago. Like yeah. she schooled him before he left. And she was like, this is the deep South. It's going to be really different. And every facet of life is different down there. In particular, Mimi was concerned that Emmett know how to behave in front of white people, which is frightening that somebody would have to teach their child that. It's just extremely disturbing to me that that was a thing and that it still is a thing in some places. But Emmett assured his mother that he understood and he was allowed to go. Now, let's take a step back for a moment and address the differences in how blacks and whites interacted in the South. And one of the things that sort of came to light during early Civil War period was a terrifying phenomena called lynching. And this is something that sprung up in the South. Statistically speaking, this violent act was, brought, was widespread in the South beginning in the early 1800s until the 50s and 60s. Interestingly enough, lynching was first reported as an act perpetuated on white Southerners. But after the Civil War, blacks became the primary targets for the brutal act. And it was now racially motivated, as opposed to perhaps economically or socially motivated prior to the Civil War. Enforced by white supremacists to intimidate ethnic minorities through racial terrorism, most victims were initially accused of murder, rape, sexual assault, etc., some kind of a crime. Mm-hmm. And they were also accused of breaches in etiquette, or competing with whites economically as an excuse to punish them and Mm -hmm. quote unquote punish them for their wrongdoing. But by the fifties, thousands of blacks had been lynched with a third of them being falsely accused of some crime prior to this violence perpetuated against them. And that's a third from the data that's been collected. I mean, correct. I don't think that data has not been collected like that. Yeah. I think that there's very much, data out there that has not been compiled but lynching victims were most often thought to be hung but victims were also shot burned alive thrown off bridges dragged behind cars and many other horrifically violent acts that ended often with a hanging like Mm -hmm. a symbolic hanging at the end where they would string up the person by a rope or a cord or whatever to a tree and this displayed the victims as a warning to prevent minorities from acting out, quote unquote, or forgetting their place among the rigidly controlled class system in the South. Mm-hmm. So during this period, when Emmett was visiting his uncle, fewer lynchings took place in this period, but racially motivated murders still occurred into the 50s and later. Additionally, interracial relationships were strictly prohibited, 
and even the suggestion of sexual contact could bring swift penalties for a black man. Yep. And it wouldn't even take a witness. It was just the word of a white woman or the word of a white man against them was all it took to basically be judge, jury, conviction, dead, done. The mid-50s were especially tense. After 1954, Brown versus Board of Education tried to end segregation in schools. And a week before Emmett visited, a black activist named Lamar Smith tried to assist with politically ending social inequalities um, not far from the little town of Money, Mississippi, and he was shot and killed in front of the courthouse. And the suspects were never prosecuted. They so were there's probably this part of the police force themselves. Probably. But this was a very tense period in time. There were some very significant inequalities and just there's a lot of fear and um, just a very, very tense time to be living in the South and to be a black person interacting with whites. Mm -hmm. But back to our story here. Here's this innocent kid with this background in Chicago. He doesn't really know what he's stepping into. He's kind of fun and charming and has no reason to believe he's stepping into anything other than a nice visit with his family. Mm -hmm. August 21st, 1955, Emmett arrives to Money, Mississippi. He's excited for this new adventure. He's sure that Mississippi is dramatically different in almost every way, but to him, it's this beautiful place and he's having a good time. And although there's this very sharp contrast to the city Emmett has grown up in, I think that he thinks that this is a neat kind of experience for him and he's kind of embracing it and meeting all these people. And he was kind of naturally sort of like to be the center of attention anyway, and a very social Mm -hmm. young man. So I think this was a great opportunity for him to experience things that were different and he was enjoying it. Well, and also, I mean, it's it's spending the summer in the country, right? I mean, like, he's a city city kid, and he's yeah. going to spend the, the summer in the country where there's, like, swimming holes, and, like, you, like, get together, and they have, like, dances, and, like, I mean, like, Barbecues it's just a completely, and, yeah, like, there's just yeah. a completely different world that he's probably looking forward to experiencing, because he's never had anything like that back in Chicago. And I think, you know, being an only child too, like he didn't really have a lot of interaction with other kids kind of in his home life. And now he's sort of tossed in the middle of all these kids and he's having a good time and just like really just experiencing the South in the summer and just having an amazing time. Now, August 24th, Emmett skips church with a cousin and joins some local kids intending to go down to the nearby Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market to buy some candy. Think about a structure, kind of like a home, turned into a little convenience store. Mm-hmm. And this is like the local Bryant family runs this store. And it's a very kind of a small sort of a store. And the teens that Emmett was with were sharecroppers kids. And they'd been picking cotton all day. And they were now ready to kind of blow off some steam and have a little fun. And this Bryant store catered mostly to sharecroppers and their children. And it was a, the market was pretty close. And it was run by a white couple named Roy and Carolyn Bryan. Mm-hmm. And um, Carolyn was alone that day in the front of the store while her sister-in-law was in the back of the store watching the kids. Emmett and his new group of friends went into the store while his cousin played checkers across the street. Now, as you can imagine, what took place next has been reported in various contradicting accounts um, since... Some of the kids were there, but I think there's definitely multiple viewpoints on what actually happened. But some of the kids say that Till had a picture of an integrated class from back in Chicago, 
and that he indicated that some of the white kids were his friends. Mm -hmm. There is some testimony that Emmett claimed to have a white girlfriend back home. Mm -hmm. And others say that the kids dared Emmett to talk to Carolyn Bryant, the store owner's wife. So the story that I had always heard is that he was being a teenager and bragging to his friends that he had dated white girls and the friends were like, nah, and he says, yes, I have. And they said, well, why don't you whistle at that white woman being Carolyn Bryant? I don't necessarily know that that actually happened. Um, again, he, he, like I said, there's like, conf- there's conflicting accounts yeah. and I'm going to kind of talk a little bit more about what happened, but this doesn't make sense to me since this is a 14 year old kid and this is an adult woman across the counter who's like the proprietor of a store. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't see him like flirting with it, her in the way that you would with uh, somebody your own age. The Emmett Till foundation um, said, does say that he did whistle at her, but, so, but listen, there's, there's also, a, there's some explanation behind yeah. that, that I'm going to kind of get into why I have a theory about gotcha, that as okay. well. And other people do. So other people that were with Emmett that day claim that these accounts are not true and there were no pictures and that he didn't speak to Brian. Others at the scene say Emmett whistled at her, while some say he was just joking around and trying to get the other kids to laugh about something. Some of the kids say that he was too scared at the reaction that he would get, and they were scared as well, and they, he would never have done that, and neither would they. Now, remember that the kids that he's with had grown up with the KKK, mm-hmm. constant threats, night raiders, terrifying local black families, and just all kinds of just tremendous threats and violence. So... Local kids here, I don't think that they think Emmett would have the guts to whistle at this white woman, but they hear that someone said he might have, and they all take off. They're freaked out that something awful is going to happen with, and with good reason, because this is kind of what had happened. But in the meantime, though, this poor kid probably had no idea what was going on, and others relayed this fact that Till was known to have a speech impediment and was taught to whistle to himself to speak more clearly as a technique to either calm his brain or focus Mm. because he had trouble pronouncing B sounds like bubble Mm -hmm. gum. And this was a tool that his mother had taught him reportedly. And he would whistle softly to himself before pronouncing words that he had trouble with. Mm, Okay. So there is some speculation that this is what he was doing because he was trying to tell her that he wanted some bubble gum right. and he couldn't pronounce the B, so he had whistled and they misinterpreted it as him whistling at mm-hmm. her. In the meantime, though, Bryant claimed, and keep in mind no one saw this, and it was her word taken without question mm-hmm. because she was a white woman, but she claimed that young Emmett grabbed her hand while she was stalking Candy and said, hey, baby, how about a date? He then followed her to the register where he grabbed her waist and said, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? And she said she was extremely afraid. And he told her not to be afraid because he'd been with white women before. Now, Carolyn then said that one of Emmett's friends came and grabbed him at that point and pulled him out of the store. No one but Carolyn supposedly saw or heard any of this speech or behavior that Carolyn insisted had happened. So it's all speculation. In fact, Till's friends say that nothing remotely inappropriate happened, that Till simply paid for his items and the group left the store without incident. Now, I have more reason to believe 
Till's side of it because Carolyn's account changed multiple times after this incident happened and became more and more embellished Mm -hmm. as the years went by. But after Till left the store, Brian went out and got a gun from her car. And the boys saw her and they saw the gun and said they heard Till whistle as Bryant went to her car. So again, he may have been very nervous and very scared and had trouble kind of speaking. Mm-hmm. And so he had whistled to himself maybe to kind of pronounce some words in trying to talk. I don't know. And again, we can speculate for ages and ages and ages, but I have more of a tendency to think given the situation and the facts surrounding this, that this was not an intentional whistling at this right. woman. Um, and then other people say that he quite possibly had whistled at the checkers game that his cousin was involved in across the street, like very, you know, not even paying attention or knowing that Carolyn was doing something over on the side, but the story spread like wildfire that probably, and it was probably like a telephone game where only a very, very small portion of this story was the actual truth, but it spread through this community very quickly. The adults on the scene knew what this meant and they told the boys immediately to go home fearing Mm -hmm. violence. Um, Emmett and his cousin didn't say anything to Mose because they were so scared they would get in trouble. Um, but they came home immediately that night and Carolyn also did not initially tell her husband about the encounter. He was on a trip in Texas. Now, when Carolyn's husband, Roy Bryant returns home, it's unclear of how he really learned about the incident at the store, but he is instantly angry and begins to aggressively question local black kids and adults. Like, he's, like, immediately pissed Mm -hmm. off and, like, out for justice immediately for what he feels like is this grave injustice to his Mm -hmm. wife. Initially, Brian and others grab a young boy and use him to learn that the boy involved in the incident with Carolyn at the store was from Chicago and was staying with Moe's right. I can hardly just imagine what had been going on at that point, but these men were probably drinking, they were probably getting all riled up, probably yelling and screaming at each other and you know, determining that they had some sort of a right to act in the way they did. But between 2 and 3 a.m., Bryant and a companion go to Wright's house, Till's uncle, and they're armed and they're ready to confront Till. Um, This is August 28th, 1955. But I'm sure that they were building up the courage. mm -hmm. They were drinking and just carousing and acting like idiots. But in any case, they went down and they grabbed Emmett and they threw him into a truck, taking him from his uncle's house. Next, they tied Emmett up and took him back towards town. Evidently, according to witnesses on the scene, Emmett was then pistol whipped until he was knocked unconscious. Various neighbors heard crying, yelling, and various local men coming and going from a nearby barn. Some of them had blood on their clothing. Others claim that Till was then shot and tossed into over a bridge in, in Glendora, Mississippi, near the Tallahatchie River. In the meantime, though, Moe's right, Emmett's uncle, thinks the men are just going to beat Emmett up and return him home, mm-hmm. kind of rough him up, let him know what's up, and kind of teach him a lesson. But when his nephew doesn't return, Moe drives around looking for him. And he's afraid to notify the local police yeah. for obvious reasons, because I think a lot of the KKK were involved in the police force and there was really not a, a sense of justice or that the police could be dependent upon in those smaller communities. But Mamie was called and immediately joins the efforts to find her son. Bryant and a companion named John Milam, Bryant's half-brother, 
was with him, and both Bryant and Milam were questioned by the police. They admit that they took Till for questioning, but claim they released him without harm shortly after. And the fact that they were just like, they had just could be like, yeah, we took him, we beat him up, we beat the shit out of him, and it's fine. Sorry, I swore. But like, the fact that they felt comfortable enough to admit that is just like the tip it's of appalling. the infuriating iceberg. It's appalling. Yeah. Um, they're like, yeah, we beat him up, but he, we left him unharmed, so we didn't do anything. Um, approximately three days after Till disappeared, his body was found in the Tallahatchie River by two boys fishing. He was swollen and disfigured. His face and head were mangled, and he'd been shot above his right ear. One eye had also been dislodged, and he'd clearly been beaten on the back and hips. There was a large fan blade tied around his neck with barbed wire to weigh him down. He was completely nude, wearing only a silver ring with his father's initials carved into it. Although his uncle was called in to ID the body, his face was unrecognizable, and the ring helped to identify him. In the meantime, the surrounding area was exploding when details of this case surfaced, with good reason. This, I just, I can't even imagine knowing that your son or your nephew or somebody that you knew could be tortured in such a brutal heinous and unjustified manner like Mm -hmm. it just it brings tears to your eyes because you just imagine this poor terrified kid who doesn't know what's going on who doesn't understand and who has no concept of why somebody would want to harm him simply for the color of his skin because that was what it was he didn't Mm -hmm. do anything wrong he didn't do anything out of the ordinary he was not a criminal he was just a kid and he was tortured and killed simply for the color of his skin. And because he had breached some sort of unspoken caste system in the South. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the segregation, the racism, the legal, the economic, political, and emotional separation between blacks and whites was all over every single newspaper and magazine, forcing the world to take notice and act. Till became a young boy who symbolized the injustice of racism embodied by the South. His mother had his body clothed, packed in lime, and placed in a pine coffin. It had a clear glass top so that everyone could see and be ashamed of what had been done to this innocent boy. Mm -hmm. Pictures of Till's mutilated body were published in the Chicago Defender and Jet magazine. This case was international news directing attention to the United States South and how bad the situation was for blacks. And I think in many other parts of the country, and even to this day, there's a tendency to downplay it. There's a tendency to say this kind of thing doesn't happen, to try to excuse it, to try to justify it, to try to explain it away, and sort of make it less than what it was. But I think this was a time in history where this was in people's faces and it was real. Mm-hmm. Mamie wanted the world to see what had been done to her boy and to be outraged. The public was forced to witness and acknowledge the brutality of Southern lynchings. They couldn't ignore it or pretend not to see it anymore because it was right there. Emmett Till was buried September 6, 1955 in the Burr Oak Cemetery in Alsip, Illinois. In the meantime, Roy Bryant and John Milan are having their pictures taken in military uniforms, smiling 
and being praised for helping defend the beautiful and virtuous Carolyn Bryant. Mm -hmm. The whites were rallying around their own, some even insisting that the body found in the river was not Emmett and that he was likely still alive and this was all a setup, which literally makes me sick to my stomach. Bryant and Malam were indicted for murder, but prosecutors were not confident that they could get a conviction in the case of violence against a black male accused of insulting a white woman. Insulting. Right. Just the word of a white woman was all yep. it took. No witnesses, no nothing. Just the word of a white woman. The two accused men were given attorneys that were willing to work pro bono, and supporters raised over $10,000 for their legal defense, as well as... Any other expenses that they had incurred during this time, they took and put collection jars in stores and other public places in the South, which just disgusting. Um, the trial was eventually held where Till's body was found in Sumner in Tallahatchie County. Um, this, this is where the body was found as opposed to where the crime occurred. Mm -hmm. um, but this is when media descended from all over the world as the circus began. The proceeding began September 1955 and lasted a whopping five days. Mm -hmm. Murder trial, five days. Appalling. The courtroom was filled to capacity by whites hoping to prevent blacks from supporting and gaining access to the courtroom. They were allowed into the courtroom, but um, the sheriff himself welcomed black people by saying, hello, N-word. And jury members were basically allowed to drink beer and carry handguns as well as white men were allowed to carry handguns into the courtroom. It was just like the freaking wild, wild west. Just craziness. Immediately, the defense calls into question the authenticity of the body. They point to a $400 life insurance policy Mamie had on Emmett. And key witnesses were completely disregarded. And doctors claimed that the decomposition of the body was too advanced to fit the timeline, and the body was white. So they were basically just like using every possible thing they could to try to excuse this and to try to say this didn't happen. Mm -hmm. On September 23rd, the all-white and all-male jury, women and blacks, were both banned from the jury, mm -hmm. acquitted both men after deliberating for a little over an hour. One juror was said to be quoted as having said, if we hadn't stopped to drink pop, it wouldn't have taken that long. Yep. So clearly... They weren't taking this seriously. It was uh, like kind of a joke to them. The primary reason for the acquittal, in the words of some of the people that were involved, is the prosecution had not proved Till had died or that it was indeed his body removed from the Tallahatchie River. That was like what it all hinged on. And I'm sure the prosecution was trying very, very hard to convict these guys. She said sarcastically. Yeah. No. As if to add insult to injury, a grand jury declined to indict either man on kidnapping charges in November of that same year, despite the fact that two men openly admitted to taking Till. Mm -hmm. All of this sparked outrage and strong criticism of the court system, while Southern papers praised the courts for, quote, doing their job. Of course, the press uncovering details about Emmett's father had a field day. And we're trying to make it into a sort of a situation where they're saying that perhaps it was some justification for the treatment against Emmett, which just to me is absolutely appalling. Um, 
They found out details about what happened to Till's father, even though Mamie and the family didn't even know what the details were. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't understand how they could have gotten that confidential information without some sort of... Chicane- somebody definitely in the army leaked it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Because the family had been told he'd been killed for willful misconduct. Yeah. So there's some chicanery going on there. And of course, these claims tried somehow to justify Emmett's death. Later, evidence surfaced showing Lewis Till's conviction and punishment was racially motivated. Oh, wow. Again, mm-hmm. which is why I said, you know, you got to take it all with a grain of salt because yeah. there's evidence that pops up later that can often exonerate some of these people. And it's by then it's too late because they've been executed and no one cares. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, knowing that they were protected against further prosecution, that kind of double jeopardy rule, Roy, Brian, and John Milan do interviews with Luke Magazine in 1956. Yep. This is the grossest part of all of it. They both admit to shooting Emmett, and neither of them believe they'd done anything wrong. Surprise, surprise, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what one was quoted as saying, what else could I do? He thought he was as good as any white man, unquote. The interview was absolutely explosive, and civil rights leaders pushed for the government to step in, It's thought that Till's death was a powerful motivation in assisting with passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957, as well as motivation for the Department of Justice to intervene in cases where individual civil rights were being compromised. Mm -hmm. The fallout from this case was significant and long-lasting. Black people were even more terrified, knowing that they could be subjected to violence and the law would not protect them. However... After Bryant and Malam admitted the killings, support from former friends and sympathizers dropped off sharply. Black people, who were the primary people that their store catered to, boycotted the shops, and they went bankrupt and closed. Bye. Yeah. Banks refused to give them credit, and eventually the two had to relocate to Texas, where locals were even less supportive. Both men eventually returned to Mississippi, and eventually Malone was tried for assault and battery, writing bad checks, stealing a credit card, etc. I'm sure those weren't the only crimes he was convicted of. He ended up dying of spinal cancer December 30th, 1980, at age 61. Bryant worked as a welder in Texas, but went blind and had to give that up. He and Carolyn ended up getting a divorce, and he remarried in 1980. He got caught for food stamp fraud... And he attempted to open another store in Mississippi and was convicted of that food stamp fraud in 1984 and 85. He ended up dying of cancer as well, September 1st, 1994, at the age of 63. 94. Right. What's Carolyn up to? Um, <laughs> I think Carolyn remarried too, but I'm going to get to her in just a second. Yeah. Um, She's a gem. Emmett's mother got married again, and became a teacher. She continued to be an advocate for civil rights and to teach people about the murder of her son. Numerous books and movies have been released about this case, and the case was reopened by the Department of Justice in 2004. At that time, Till's body was exhumed, and an autopsy was performed in 2005. Dental comparisons, images, and DNA helped confirm that the body was indeed Emmett Till's, putting that to rest, And the autopsy revealed extensive cranial damage. The left femur was broken and both of Till's wrists were broken. 
Hmm. Bullet fragments were found in Emmett's skull as well, obviously, because he'd been shot in the head. But February 2007, a grand jury found that there was no credible basis for a claim that 14 additional people took part in the Till's kidnapping and murder. No charges against Carolyn or any other relatives were ever filed, and the grand jury was composed of mostly black jurors this time. Mm-hmm. In 2006, a highway marker remembering Till was erected and then immediately disfaced with KKK graffiti and then covered in black paint. Eight additional markers were placed in 2007, marking sites associated with Till's murder. These were repeatedly vandalized and shot up. Surprise, surprise, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Through the years, some claim that Carolyn Bryant recanted her testimony. Um, Her testimony, interestingly enough, wasn't even used in the trial. It was ruled inadmissible. So she she didn't even testify in the trial against her hubby. She also said that nothing could have been done that would justify what happened to Emmett Till. So she acknowledged to some degree that there was nothing this poor young boy could have done that would justify what happened to him. But at the same time, it does not appear that she was apologetic or took responsibility for her own actions. Are you going to talk about how she did recant in 2017? Um, I was told that she didn't recant, that somebody claimed that she'd recanted, but that she really didn't. Okay, go ahead. Um, look it up. The case has long since become emblematic of injustice suffered by blacks in the South. And this particular instance shook the foundations of Mississippi because not even a child was safe from racism, bigotry, and death, quote unquote. Mamie toured the country with the NAACP to educate people and to relate the story of her son and his death. It was said that Till was a sacrificial lamb for civil rights, and many consider this the start of the civil rights movement, at the very least in Mississippi. Rosa Parks attended a rally for Till, led by Martin Luther King Jr., and soon after refused to give up her seat on a segregated bus. She later claimed, I thought of Emmett Till, and I just couldn't go back. Muhammad Ali was also said to be influenced by Till's death, and this also sparked a massive jump in registered black voters in Mississippi and other parts of the South. Writers like Langston Hughes dedicated poems to Emmett, and William Faulkner wrote essays on Till. Toni Morrison, Janelle Monet, and countless others were inspired to stand up and speak Emmett's name and to make a change in the world for racial equality and justice. Now, stepping back to the Carolyn case, there are some mm-hmm. people that say that she recanted her testimony, and there are still others that claim that despite the rumors on this, that she supposedly gave a recorded testimony to recant it, but no one can find it, and there are other people that claim that she never recanted. So it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of, it, I've seen it both, both ways. It, it made really big news when the story first came out in 2017, and um, I'm looking at an article from the News and Observer that says... Um, a book by historian Timothy Tyson is where Carolyn Bryant Donham says that she lied. So I guess maybe in an interview, she admits that she did make up the story that Emmett Till um, physically touched her in any way. Like I, I, I think there's, um, there's obviously there's evidence, like you said, that, that he did whistle at her, or whistle at her or not at her. We don't know, but he did whistle, but she, the claim that, that he, grabbed her arm or 
grabbed her by the waist or any of that. She supposedly does in this, in this interview with this author admit that she made that up. I don't believe he did anything to her. I don't believe he touched her. I don't believe he did anything inappropriate. I don't right. I don't believe anything was done. I think that the the evidence in this case and the way people acted in the South and the way relations were between blacks and I think that she had every reason to make that up. I think that the culture of racism and inequality in that area sort of was a powder keg ready to explode in an incident mm-hmm. like this. So one last thing. So you mentioned the markers and that they have been repeatedly vandalized. And last year, no, in 2019, they finally put up another marker that is bulletproof. In 2019, they had to put up a bulletproof marker. Isn't that bonkers? Because college kids... The most recent one was um, some fraternity kids from the University of Mississippi, known colloquially as Ole Miss, took some pictures and posted it on their social media of them standing at the Riverside marker holding rifles. And there's bullet holes in the marker. And they posted that on their social media. And I'm sure none of them were punished. They, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, Ole Miss said they couldn't identify the students, even though their faces are very clear in the photo. Just ridiculous. Yeah. I think so. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so yeah, so they, so there is now a bulletproof marker because that's the world that we still live in, in the year 2021. Right. To me, I think one of the most disturbing parts about this is I just can't imagine any universe where me as a white woman would look at someone and determine categorically with no reason behind it that another person is unworthy of living, needs to be punished in that way for just existing. It is, I just can't imagine any scenario where you'd want to hurt somebody else just because they have skin that's a different color than yours. Um, And I guess, you know, that's the culture of living in the South, maybe. And that's a culture of maybe being a white person raised in the South in part of the Confederacy kind of situation. I don't know. And, you know, I grew up in the North. I grew up in in a very kind of a different environment. So it's it's extremely hard for me to understand that and to, to know that people did that and still do it today. I think that's the biggest thing that, and I believe, I'm sure I've said this on the show before, uh, that's the biggest difference I found in growing up in the South versus living other places. Um, When I moved out to California and when I've met people that grew up in the North or what have you, Um, you very much learn that people learned about the civil rights movement as it was a moment in history and then it's over. Yep. Whereas we continued to live it every day. It was very much a thing of even in the area where I grew up, which was very affluent and primarily white, it was still very much a thing where, and I've said this before, I didn't want people to know I was biracial because I was afraid of what they would think. I wasn't afraid that I was going to be physically hurt, but I was afraid of what people would think and that people wouldn't talk to me anymore and that people would treat me differently. And I was very aware of that 
growing up and you you know I moved to California and and I I don't I I don't know you know I don't think I met anybody in California that's actually racist I think it's it's that there are you learn about it as if the civil rights movement is over yeah it it happened in the 60s and then we solved it and I don't even know if they teach that much just being from where I grew up I mean you learn about the civil war that's a big thing but like mm-hmm. you don't really learn you learn about Martin Luther King and about like Malcolm X maybe and it's this mm-hmm. little blurb and it's like hey there was this thing that happened very briefly and, then, and now it's over and, and everything's sunshine and rainbows yeah yeah so and i think that we've like what's what's happened in the in the past few years is we've seen that it is still very current and it is still very much those feelings are still very much bubbling underneath the surf, just underneath the surface, and they've started to come out again. And I mean, I think it was a reaction of electing our first black president. I mean, like, regardless of how you felt about him politically, right? Not saying anything about politics, but I think it was a response. The country swung the other way in response to electing the first black president. We thought we had made all this progress, and then there's all these people that come out and say, no, no we don't want things to be like that. And it became more outspoken and vocal. And I think that's why it's important that we still continue to tell these stories because history does repeat itself. It's and We're seeing that right now. It's shocking. But yeah. at the same time, so are so many other recent stories. And I think I looked at this, I think it's 60 years ago, like 60 mm-hmm. some odd years ago. That's not that long ago. Nope. We want to think it's like a hundred years ago or two. No, that was like not even a century ago, not barely a half a century ago. My both of my parents were alive when that happened. Yeah, I just. I mean, my heart breaks for people that had to feel the fallout for that poor little boy that just didn't. Regardless of what happened, regardless of any action that young boy could have taken, he did not deserve that. Right. And that's the most challenging part of it all, that this person, Carolyn, would, number one, lie about something like that, and number two, would let this poor boy suffer and not speak up for justice mm-hmm. and for what's right. That's, the, that's a ch- very, very challenging for me, that somebody could allow that to happen. And they said, oh, well, she was abused by her husband and... and domestic violence and blah 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 no i don't care what's happening in your life for you to allow a 14 year old boy to be murdered brutally and tortured when you had the ability to stop it Mm -hmm. no excuse no excuse ever there is um i'm not sure if there's an instagram but there is a twitter account for the emmett till legacy foundation it's just at emmett till e-m-m-e-t-t T-I-L-L. Uh, I would encourage you to, to follow that account. They tweet a lot of information and a lot of the historical facts about Emmett Till. They also have a petition that you can go and sign. It's on moveon.org to prosecute Carolyn Bryant as an accomplice to murder because that case, she could still be tried as an accomplice. There's no statute um, for her role. limitations on that. So, yeah, yeah. she could. So, There's no double jeopardy um, on her part. Right. So we will um, we'll post that information in the notes and like on our Twitter and stuff like that. But um, but a lot of people say that she was involved and that witness accounts say that they heard a female voice say, yeah, that's him. And that she was in the car when they picked him up and so forth. So there 
There is evidence that she did, although mm. I think that that is very, very hard to overcome when you have a grand jury that failed to... That doesn't want to... That refused to indict her. Indict, yeah. But... Yeah, it's, but... It's uh, obviously a very... If nothing else... Yeah. If nothing else, it's a really good educational tool. I'd encourage you to follow that account um, and, and just learn more about, about Emmett Till's story. Yeah, and we're still hearing the echoes of it today. Um, and I think that, you know, it's really important to keep his name on our lips because he mm-hmm. meant something. He wasn't just a little boy. He was a person, a human being who didn't deserve that. And the most recent story, because his name still is in the news, and I don't know if you saw this when you were looking it up, but um, a story on January 28th of this year came out um, that Emmett Till's childhood home is now a landmark in Chicago. It's been granted landmark status. It's a cute little house. I saw the pictures yeah. of it. Yep. So it's it was um, it's being upheld and and preserved by a group called Preservation Chicago, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting and re- revitalizing the city's irreplaceable architecture, neighborhoods, and urban green spaces. They were pushing to designate Till's home as a historical landmark for almost five years. So it is now a historical landmark. So we'll post that information also. Yeah. So I think it's pretty clear that there's still a lot of people who are drawing inspiration from his story even today. Mm-hmm. So it's important. And we're, we're giving it that. We're acknowledging that. So um, is there anything else you want to add? Nope. I realize that's a really sad topic. Heavy. <laughs> very, very but heavy. But it's stuff that we need to talk about. We can't just We can't just not talk about things because they're hard. Yeah. Undoubtedly. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So like I said, we'll post the notes and all the information and the stories and everything there as well. Um, so you can go find that information and all those resources for yourself. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.